Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Epic. So glad you're with us this morning. And I'm just curious, how many of you recognize that last song our worship team played? Okay, so who can name the artist? You two. Who can name the title of the song? Great. We've got some U2 fans here this morning. Now, for those of you who are not U2 fans, you might be thinking, like, is it okay for us to play a secular song like that at church? Let me remind you, we're in a middle school cafeteria. Okay, so I think it's probably really okay. Now, um, you know, any building can become a church. So um, the reality is I have asked our worship team to play that song for us because it sets up this series that we're about to start today called One. And like we said last week, Brian said that this is probably one of the most important series we've done in the, the life of our church And we are about to be 11 years old. So this is a big series for us. And I think as we walk through this series, we're going to see how big of a series this is to God and how big of an issue it should be for us. The reality is that Jesus modeled what we're going to be talking about. And he actually prayed about it before he was arrested. This was a big conversation he had with his disciples, and we're going to explore that a little bit today. So we'll be in John chapter 17. That will be the the core theme verse that we have or chapter that we have all throughout this series. And so let me explain where we are before we get to John 17. So in John 13, Jesus gathers his disciples together for what was known as the Passover meal. So he celebrates the Passover meal with them and institutes a few new things in that meal that they're a little confused about. And he starts that off by washing their feet. And he modeled for them the kind of life that he wanted them to live. And he he said, after he washed their feet, he said, this is what I want you to do. Now go and do the same for other people. And then in chapter 14, Jesus started talking with them about the reality he was going to leave. He was going to die. He was going to go back to heaven. They're really sad about that. And Jesus says in chapter 14, don't be sad about that. He says, you know me, you have a relationship with me, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you have a relationship with me, you understand how to have eternal life. Then in chapter 15, Jesus uses an illustration using a vine and branches. And he says, listen, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So you got to stay closely connected to me always. In chapter 16, Jesus says, listen, it's good that I go away because the Holy Spirit is going to show up. And the Holy Spirit is going to teach you. He's going to guide you. He's going to empower you to live the life that I want you to live, the life that I've actually modeled for you. And then we get to chapter 17, where Jesus prays his longest most public prayer that he's prayed, again, right before his arrest and being sentenced to crucifixion. So before we get into that, let's just try to imagine together what Jesus' disciples must have been feeling in that moment. It must have been feeling all throughout that night as they're celebrating the Passover meal with Jesus. So they come into the Passover meal and they're looking around for a foot washing servant. Somebody forgot to, to arrange that. Maybe it was Peter, maybe it was John. You know, people are, are picking on each other like, I can't believe you forgot to, to get the foot washing servant here. And then Jesus gets up 
and he washes his disciples' feet. And Peter goes, no, like, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you can't be a part of me. And Peter goes to another extreme. He's really good at extremes. And he goes, well, then give me a bath. Give me a shower. Like, you can wash all of me. And Jesus goes, no, time out, Peter. We don't need to go that far. We just need to wash your feet, okay? So Jesus washes their feet. And then he institutes something new again at the Passover celebration, something they're a little confused by. They, they don't really understand this new meaning. Jesus is talking about his body being broken, his blood being poured out for them. They don't fully grasp that. And th the conversation continues where they're a little confused. So if you're in the spot of one of Jesus' disciples, describe some of the things that you think you'd be feeling, some of the things that you would be thinking. Who is this guy? Yeah, who is this guy? Like, he's not supposed to be washing our feet, and he's doing that? Like, really, Jesus? What else would you be thinking? Confusion. Confusion. Somebody say fear of the future? Yeah, fear of the future, the unknown. Jesus, you're leaving? Really? Like, we put all of our hopes and dreams in you. Where are you going? Can we go with you? Like, I'm sure they were afraid of the future. A little confused. Anybody anxious about the future? Anybody confused right now? Anybody a little overwhelmed at life? I, I think we all have a little glimpse of what Jesus' disciples felt in that moment as Jesus was walking them through the Passover meal, and then Jesus stands up to pray. And they hear this prayer. So this is what Jesus prayed. In John 17, starting in verse 1, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone, and he gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. We'll get back to that by the end of the message. In verse 4, he prayed, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory that we shared before the world began. I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you, for I passed on to them the, the message you gave me. They accepted it and know that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. Now I am departing from the world. They're staying in this world, but I'm coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be unified just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name that you gave me. I guarded them so that not one was lost except the one headed for destruction as the scriptures foretold. Now I'm coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word. And the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. 
And I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. So if you are a Christ follower today, or if you will be a Christ follower before you pass on this earth, Jesus was praying for you specifically over 2,000 years ago. And he prayed this in verse 21. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory that you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. O righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them and I will be in them. Now there's a whole lot wrapped up in that prayer of Jesus. And it could take us months and months to unpack that. But for this series, we're going to zero in on just one specific verse, and that is verse 21, where Jesus prayed that we would be one just as he and his Father are one. And as we begin that exploration, we're going to look at something that Jesus talked a lot about during the Passover meal, and he even prayed about it. We're going to talk about his relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that is known in Christianity as the Trinity, the Trinity relationship. Now, the Trinity relationship is a complex relationship that is very hard for us to understand. I mean, we have not seen a relationship that's so unified and so beautiful like that before. So it's hard for us to, to really comprehend that. And there's a lot of misperception out there today when it comes to the Trinity, but here is a basic understanding of what Christianity teaches about the Trinity. Christianity teaches that God exists in a relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And each of those are one. They are united in their Godhead, and yet they are distinct in role and function within that Godhead. Is that crystal clear? And some of us go, Okay, hold on. Really, like, help me understand that a little bit more. And all of our attempts to try to fully understand the Trinity fall short. And any description that we have falls short because we, again, cannot fully grasp this kind of relationship. So I have heard us uh, come up with all kinds of examples. I've heard people talk about water, different parts of water. I've heard people use fruit as an example. I've actually heard people use a banana to describe the Trinity. I've heard people use an egg to describe the Trinity. And uh, again, every example that we try to give falls short. Even the example I'm about to give falls short. But for me, the best description that I can, can think of, the best description that I've heard to describe the Trinity relationship is to think of the Trinity relationship as a family. So if, if I had my wife with me on stage today and one of our kids, you would see me, you would see my wife, you would see one of our kids. And when you look at our family, how many families would you say there are? There's one. 
There's one family. And you would know that I am not my wife. My wife is not one of my kids. One of my kids is not me. You would know that we are different in role and function within our relationship, but we would know that there's one family there. And I think that's a helpful way for us to understand the Trinity relationship. Again, that still falls short of that actual relationship, but I think it it gives us a foundation to start with. Now, there are books upon books that have been written about the Trinity, and if you would like some of those, uh, I will point you in the direction where you can dig a little deeper in that, and uh, we're not going to spend a lot more time on that except to ask some questions about that relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So I want you to just kind of think about some of these things with me this morning. So when you think about the Trinity relationship that Jesus was talking about, is there any trash talk going on in that relationship? Is the Holy Spirit saying, why does everything always have to be about Jesus? I mean, I'm here, I do stuff. Is Jesus saying, why did God the Father sit on his throne while I had to die a horrible death? Is Jesus saying that? Is God the Father saying, why does everybody love Jesus? Why does everybody think the Holy Spirit is so cool and thinks that I'm angry at everybody? Is God the Father saying that? Are there any power struggles in the Trinity relationship? Is there any jealousy? Is there any division? Is there any discrimination? I think we can all easily say no. There's none of that going on. Why? Because that's a relationship of perfect unity and oneness and beauty. So there would never be any of that in that relationship. Now, Jesus gave us an interesting clue in his prayer about our relationship to the Trinity. He actually said, we are invited into that relationship. And if that doesn't blow our minds, I'm not exactly sure what will, because a perfect God invites imperfect us, people like us, into that perfect relationship. And that's what makes Christianity so beautiful and so incredibly amazing. But we have to ask another question and ask this of ourselves. So we've been invited into that relationship. And how are we doing when it comes to being unified? How are we humans doing when it comes to being unified with each other? Anybody? Not good. good. We're not doing very good. You look around our world, you see disunity, um, you see conflict, Uh, You see uh, that we are divided in almost every subject of life. You just look at the United States. We are divided politically. We're divided ethnically. We are divided generationally. We're even divided spiritually in many contexts. There's so much division, and that division is literally tearing our nation apart right now. So we're not doing a very good job. Now, is anybody surprised by the, the conflict and chaos that's going on around us? Is that kind of shocking to anybody? Like not a whole lot of people are shocked by that. Actually, we shouldn't be shocked by that because it's been going on for a long time. It's been going on since about the beginning of human existence. You know, we can't go very far without creating conflict, without creating division, 
without creating some sort of discrimination somewhere. And our disunity has been such a big deal. It's been such a problem. It is such a problem that Jesus felt the need to talk to his father and talk to his disciples about our unity before leaving planet Earth. He felt the need to actually pray about it. And here's the interesting thing about Jesus' prayer. We have the power to answer it. You know, normally we're praying to God to answer our prayers. But here in this context, Jesus is praying to his heavenly father and we have the power to answer Jesus' prayer. And we should answer Jesus' prayer when we understand all that Jesus has done for us. And so that should motivate us. Us having the ability and the power to answer this incredible prayer should motivate us to do all that we can to answer it. In verse 23, Jesus prayed, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. So our unity has eternal consequences. It has the ability to help people be reconciled in their relationship with God. And on the flip side, our disunity has the ability to push people away from God for all of eternity. So let that sink in for just a moment. Our disunity has the ability to send people to hell. The weight of that should also motivate us. It should motivate us to do anything and everything that we can to be unified within the body of Christ and to invite other people into that relationship where they can be unified with God as well. Now, I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as he described our mission of unity. In verse 18, he said, God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors, God is making his appeal through us and we speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So if you're a Christ follower, you have been given a task of reconciliation, of helping people be reconciled to God. Again, in verse 21, Paul said, God made Christ who never sinned to be the the sin offering, the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. The reality is when we broke our relationship with God, God stepped in to fix it. And he stepped in a big way to fix this big mess that we, we made. He actually emptied all of his wallet He gave all that he had so that he could fix what we had damaged. I'm curious, do we have any parents here who have um, stepped in to fix something that your kid has damaged? Anybody done that as a parent? Yeah, a number of hands go up. Um, When I was probably in kindergarten, uh, we lived in Michigan. And uh, it was time for me to get off of my training wheels on my bike and, uh, you know, I should have been riding my bike without those, but I was a little bit nervous about, you know, that whole big new world out there on just two wheels instead of four. So uh, one day my dad took my training wheels off. He put me on the bike and he said, here you go, buddy. 
Now, uh, it would have been cool if we weren't in a parking lot with cars. Uh, so I, in my little bit of anxiety, did the swerve, swerve, swerve into a car. Boom. Nice big dent in the driver's side door. Guess what my dad got to do? Step in and pay for that to fix something that I had damaged. And, and God does that in an exponential way when he steps in to fix the stuff that we have damaged on this world. And the reality is our world doesn't understand that. Most of our world thinks, you know what, if God exists, he's probably just angry. He only loves those people who are super religious. And that's not true. God loves everyone. And he's proven that through what he's given, the life of his son, allowing his son to die on the cross in our place to pay for our sins, to fix what we had damaged. And much of the world just doesn't understand that. And again, we have a responsibility to help people understand that because God is making his appeal through us. So if you are a Christ follower, you have a responsibility to help people be reconciled to God. And I'm curious whether you see yourself as God's ambassador of reconciliation or not. I'm curious whether you wake up in the morning and think as you open your eyes, today I'm going to help somebody be reconciled to God. You know, if I were just completely honest and candid with you as I'm about to be, there are many days I wake up and I don't think that. I wake up and think, I hope I can make it through the day. I hope nobody gets on my nerves today. I hope I can get everything done that I have planned for today. And Paul says, man, you got to wake up in the morning and say, today is my opportunity to help somebody somewhere be reconciled in their relationship with God, because that's our primary task. All right, we're going to shift from the vertical. We're going to shift to the horizontal, because I think a significant part of helping people be reconciled to God involves helping people be reconciled to each other. Jesus said the greatest commandment is that we learn to love God and that we learn to love people. Jesus also said in Matthew 5, 9, he said, blessed are the peacemakers. He said, blessed are people who bring peace in moments of conflict. Blessed are people who bring unity in relationships where there's disunity. Blessed are people who bring love in a hate-filled world. And why was Jesus so concerned about peace? Because it comes from his essence. It comes from his most prized relationship, that Trinity relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's why he was so passionate about peace and unity, that relationship that we are invited into and we should be sharing with the world around us and modeling to the world around us. So in addition to helping people be reconciled to God, we should be helping people be reconciled to each other. If you know a family that's in conflict, if you know maybe some friends that are on the edge of divorce and they are struggling, you as a Christ follower have a responsibility to do what you can to help them resolve that. If you know some coworkers that are battling over some racial conflict right now, you have a responsibility to be a peacemaker. You have a responsibility to be an ambassador of reconciliation and step into that relationship and do what you can to bring unity 
in that relationship. If you are in conflict with someone right now, you have a responsibility to do your part to live at peace with those people. Does that mean that you're going to be successful in that and, and everything's going to work out beautifully? Not necessarily. The scripture says we should do our part to bring peace to every situation. We shouldn't, shouldn't sit back and say, you know what? They're the ones in the wrong. They should come to me. When they come to me, I'll bring peace into that relationship. We shouldn't do that. We should be the ones that go first and do what we can to bring peace in those relationships. Again, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. He didn't say blessed are those who ignore conflict. He didn't say blessed are those who avoid bringing peace or overlook opportunities for peace. He said, blessed are those who step into conflict to bring peace and unity in those relationships. Now, in Acts chapter 2, we have a beautiful picture of what that unity can look like for us. In the time we have remaining, I want us to spend a little bit of time just looking at that together. And Acts chapter 2 records some of the amazing events that happened after Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus uh, gathered his disciples together in Matthew, the end of Matthew, and he tells them, I'm leaving, I'm going back to heaven, now go into all the world and tell people about me. And then he actually tells them, stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit shows up. And when the Holy Spirit shows up, and then I want you to be empowered and I want you to go out into the entire world. So they're waiting on the Holy Spirit. Who's the Holy Spirit at that point for them? They don't know. They don't know what they're waiting for. They're just waiting. So they're waiting in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. So they got in this moment this supernatural ability to speak in other known foreign languages. And why that was so significant at that moment was there were Jews in Jerusalem from all over the known world at that time who spoke many different languages. And they heard this big commotion and they came running to see what was going on. And they hear all these people from this region called Galilee, this kind of backcountry part of their country. And they hear all these people speaking these known languages. They're like, there's no way that they would have this ability. And so they started arguing with each other about this. They were confused. So somebody comes up with the great conclusion, they all must be drunk. Because, you know, if you've ever seen a drunk person, they can speak another language fluently. So, you know, that was a rational thought at that moment, right? So someone says, oh, they're just drunk. Peter stands up and goes, no, 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 it's way too early for that. It's like nine o'clock in the morning. We do that later. He didn't say that. So he just said it's too early for being drunk. Um, And then he goes on to explain kind of what's happening. He preached this message of reconciliation, that reconciliation is possible through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he held nothing back when he talked to these people. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he said this. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Can you imagine how awkward that conversation was? You crucified him, but God made him to be both Lord and Messiah. And in verse 37, 
It says Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter went on to explain how they could be reconciled to God through a relationship with Jesus Christ and get this 3,000 people were added to the church that day, 3,000. Can you imagine if 3,000 people from our community showed up here this morning and said, hey, we heard this is a place we could learn about Jesus and be reconciled to God. What should we do? I would tell you, move over. If you're a Christ follower, I would tell you to get out. Go get more people so that we could help them understand how to have a relationship with God and be connected with him. That must have been an amazing experience. And then watch what happened next. In verse 42, it says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together in the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Their unity was so attractive that thousands of people flocked to it. Thousands of people said, like, I I want that. I've never seen that before. I would love to be a part of that. And I think that God wants that kind of unity to be lived in a church family again today. I think God wants that. But for that to happen, for thousands of people to be so attracted to the church, we have to be unified. We have to be unified with each other. We have to be unified with people around us. We have to promote unity. We have to pursue unity. We have to fight for unity. We have to do everything we can to do everything that's possible to bring peace and unity into the relationships that we have around us. And when we do that, I think the church, God's family, will be so beautiful and so attractive, people won't be able to stay away. They'll do whatever they can to come and be a part of God's family. So that's what we're going to be talking about throughout the rest of this series. Today's been kind of an introduction. For us, we're going to explore how we can practically answer Jesus' prayer, how we can bring unity into our world. We'll talk about what unity is. We'll talk about what unity is not. And since racial tension is a big issue right now facing the United States, We're going to talk about how to bring racial reconciliation to our relationships and the influence that we have with other people. So I encourage you to come back for this entire series. Don't just watch a portion of it. Come back for this entire series. This will be a four-part series for us. I encourage you to, to come back next week here on campus. Invite somebody to come with you. Or if that's not possible, invite somebody to join us online and Together, we will learn what it means for us to be unified and answer Jesus' prayer for that. Now, before we close, I want to go back to our mission of reconciliation. My final question this morning is this. Are you reconciled to God? Are you reconciled? Have have you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? 
if you have, you are part of that Trinity relationship. And you and I have a responsibility to model that relationship to people around us. People that think different than we do, look different than we do, vote different than we do. We have a responsibility to bring peace and unity into the relationships that we have around us. So how are you doing at that? If you have not been reconciled to God, if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can do that. You can do that this morning. Again, uh, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he said, God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for sin. So let's personalize that. He made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin. I'll get real personal for me. He made Christ to be the offering for my sin. The stuff that I damaged. The stuff that you damaged. God the Father opened up his wallet and he paid all that he had so that you could have a relationship with God that would last forever so you could be invited into this perfect relationship of unity. And in verse 19, he said, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. So believe it or not, right now, God is not counting your sins against you. He's paid for those sins. He's paid for those sins with the life of his son, Jesus. And in verse three of John 17, Jesus prayed, this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. So if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'm gonna guide you in how you can do that this morning. And then our worship team's gonna close us out in a final song. But if you've got questions about what we've talked about today, or if you've got questions about being reconciled to God or being reconciled to someone else, I'm gonna be available up front here. If you wanna talk after the service, just stop on by. If you've got some hurts in your life right now, there's some pain, there's some angst in your life, I encourage you to stop by our care table before you leave. On the, uh, the way out on the left-hand side in our lobby, you'll see a care and groups table. Just stop there. We've got some people there that would love to pray with you, pray for you, and help you in any way that we can. So if you would, let's all bow our heads and pray together. As we, we pray today, I'm, I'm real curious to know if there's anybody here willing to admit that right now you are in a conflict that is really deep in your life. If, if you're willing to admit that, would you raise your hand? Just hold your hand up for just a second. I see several hands. I see, yep, four or five, six. Thank you for that. Let me remind you that if you're a Christ follower, God has given you the task of reconciliation. And he says, Go. And do your part. Does that mean you're going to be able to fix it all? It doesn't. It just means go and do your part to live at peace in those relationships. So God, I pray for these folks that have been courageous enough to admit that they're in a conflict relationship right now. Those things are painful, Lord. Those things often just kind of unravel our lives and unravel our world. And yet you've given us a beautiful picture in scripture of how to resolve those things. You tell us, if you know somebody's got something wrong with you, go and talk to them. If you've got something with somebody else, go and talk with them. So Lord, your, your command for all of us is to go. And we understand that doesn't always mean that we're gonna resolve this stuff because there's always somebody on the other side. Somebody who may not be willing to resolve things. And so God, we gotta do our part we got to do what you've asked us to do. So, Lord, I pray that these folks would do what you've asked 
them to do. Now, I'm also curious this morning, if there's anybody here willing to admit that you've never been reconciled in your relationship with God, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and you would like to do that this morning for the first time in your life. So if there's anybody here that's in that spot, willing to admit that, would you just hold your hand up real quick? Just hold your hand up so I can see that. I see one. Thank you for your courage, sir. I see one. There may be more online or there may be somebody just a little nervous about holding your hand up. So if you've held your hand up or if your hand's being held up symbolically in your heart, I encourage you to, to pray a prayer, something similar to this, in your heart to God. Nothing magical about the words. What God cares about is is the sincerity of our hearts when we talk to him about this critical issue of being reconciled to him. And so we would say something like this, God, forgive me for my sins. Thank you for sending Jesus to pay the price so I can be reconciled to you. Right now, I ask you to come into my life and be my personal Lord and Savior. And I commit today that I'm going to follow you the rest of my life. If you've just prayed that prayer right now for the first time in your life, I encourage you to keep coming back. I encourage you to keep growing in this new relationship that you have with God. Keep growing in what it means to be unified in that relationship and bring unity to the relationships around you. You've just been invited into a relationship that lasts forever. So congratulations. Welcome to the family of God. So God, I'm going to close today by just saying I'm so grateful for those that were courageous enough to raise their hand and say, like, I want that. I want to be a part of the Trinity relationship. I want to have a relationship with God that lasts forever. So Lord, I pray that you would grow those people in their relationship with you. Help them to understand what you've done for them and help them to invite other people to be a part of your family. Lord, I pray that we would learn what it means to be one. Lord, we would leave today with that on our minds that that we are ambassadors of reconciliation. We should help people be reconciled to you and help people be reconciled to each other. Keep our eyes open to the many opportunities that we have to do that. In Jesus' name, we pray this. Amen. If you would, let's stand and sing together.